Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. We're doing another Zoom call, so if you're listening to this, make sure to check out WNCT.com if you want to see the video attached to this episode. So today, we're going to talk about an article that was written called, Could the Post-Pandemic post-pandemic, excuse me, economy be better? And we have that author of the article with us, so I'm going to go ahead and ask him to introduce himself. Well, uh, good, good afternoon. Uh, Dr. Mike Walden here. I am a Reynolds Distinguished Professor Emeritus, which means I'm actually retired from teaching after 43 years, but I'm still active doing writing, uh, writing books, writing articles, doing public speaking, doing consulting, etc. Um, my uh, focus in my career has always uh, been toward the average person. Um, I'm not interested necessarily in the stock market, although I wish I could predict the stock market, but I've always been interested in how the economy affects the average person, the average household, the average families, et cetera. And so uh, I do this column that you're referring to. I, I do this every other week and it goes out to most media outlets across the state. And this particular article uh, did focus as a lot of my recent articles have on the pandemic, but sort of on an upside view of the pandemic. I mean, we look at the pandemic and all we think is negative and I, I get that, I do that too. But the, the point of the article was to look at some trends that we may see continuing after the pandemic, which may actually help uh, average people. So can we can we try to figure out when exactly the the post pandemic economy starts if we're in it what when when how would we know if we're in the economy that's kind of like labeled post pandemic Well I don't I don't I don't think there's going to be any marker that says uh, like you're at a road stopping a road and say okay go right you're going to be in the post pandemic economy but uh, we've seen trends, and let me, let me get into this a little bit. I mean, one of the big trends we saw during the, during the pandemic was uh, the increase in remote working. Now, remote working had been, has been here for a long time, but pre-pandemic, about 8% of the workforce was working at least part-time remotely. At the height of the pandemic, which would have been April, May of 2020, 60%, can you imagine that? 60% of people were working at least a day or two remotely. Now it's already tailed, it's already pulled back from there, but uh, the experts who really, really follow this, and, and I'm referring to a, a, a Professor Bloom at Stanford, who has a group that really tracks information on remote working. Uh, they estimate right now we're probably in the 25 to 30% range of uh, people who are, are working at least part-time remotely, but they do think it's going to continue at that relatively at that level. Now you might say, well, all right, big deal. So what's good about that? Well, what's what's good about that for people who like it is that think about getting up in the morning, not having the, to deal with a commute into work, uh, 25, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, think about the fact that if you have a partner or spouse who also works, you, you both need a vehicle, maybe you won't need, both need a vehicle now. Um, so you save a bunch of time. It's estimated uh, that the average person would probably save Oh, as much as 10 hours a week if they didn't have to deal with commuting. 
Think about if you didn't need two cars, you'd get rid of one. There's probably, uh, when you count insurance, when you count gasoline, maintenance, et cetera, that's another three or $4,000 that you could save, save annually. Uh, now, again, remote working is not for everyone, but on the other hand, there are a lot of people, surveys, and so they really, really like it. So this is an example of a trend that if it continues, which I think it will after the pandemic, and if businesses realize, hey, there's, some, there's something in it for us too. If we, don't have, if we don't have to have all of our staff back at the office, maybe we don't need as big of an office, we're gonna save some money. Uh, if, we, if we find workers who really like this, their morale is gonna be higher, they're probably gonna be a, a better worker. In fact, there's one study that found that during the pandemic, people who were working remotely, their productivity actually went up. They actually got more done in the amount of time they were working. So uh, this is not for everyone, but my point is this is an option now that we've had experience with, I think will carry through uh, the, the post-pandemic uh, period and that it's probably going to provide some big benefits and gains for people. One more thing I might say, um, if you look at the 21st century, 21st century has really been the century so far of the big city, big metropolitan areas. You, you both know that we just got the 2020 census numbers out for North Carolina. All of the big metros grew. In fact, they have the fastest growth. So I'm talking the Triangle, I'm talking Charlotte, et cetera. Uh, 51 of North Carolina's 100 counties, all of them rural, <clears throat> actually declined in population. And this is because uh, for, for all the 21st century, the, the better paying jobs, the good paying jobs, the good schools, et cetera, all in the big cities. Well, think about if you didn't have to work in a big city, you didn't have to work in a big metropolitan area, you could, you could work remotely. That means maybe you could work, live in a small town. Maybe you could live in Kinston, North Carolina. Maybe you could live in a, in a rural county in Terrell County, uh, Jones County. Um, and you would save a bunch of money in terms of your housing costs. The average house, we're looking at the same size house, so pick whatever size you want, let's say 2,000 square feet. You put that, that house in a city, it's going to be twice as expensive as if you're in a rural, rural area or a small town. So this is another example of how uh, these trends that we're seeing uh, in the post-pandemic world that I think will continue could benefit a lot of people. Definitely. And I kind of want to go back to what you were saying, you know, about about this remote working and how this might kind of carry through into the into, you know, past post pandemic life. And, you know, I've heard kind of conversations, you know, in the news about possible four day work weeks. You know, I know some companies have actually already implemented that for their employees specifically. So do you see that kind of playing a role as well, maybe in the upcoming months or years post pandemic that we move to? possible four-day week. Sure, sure. I mean, it could. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I'm not one who wants this legislated, but I think certainly businesses could do this. And again, where would this time come from? Uh, well, you could add another hour a day uh, in your work life that really isn't going to spend, put, put any more time in terms of what you're doing work because you're cutting out the commute. So if you, if you work uh, nine hours a day or maybe nine and a half hours a day, you could conceptually get all your work in that you were doing previously in four days, you, you can get it all. I mean, say previously in five days, you could get it in four days because you're you're not spending that an hour on the road going and coming from work. So uh, yeah, I think I think this and 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 really to back up a minute, a lot of businesses they really had to think outside the box during the pandemic because they were desperate to keep operations going. They need workers to do that. Workers couldn't get into work because we had a stay-at-home order. 
and so this really was what sparked the notion of remote working. And I think now businesses are realizing, you know what, uh, this can work for some people, it can work for us. Uh, and so again, this creates all sorts of possibilities. But I want to emphasize, this is not for everyone. There are a lot of people out there who like a barrier, a physical barrier, if you will, between their home life and their work life. They don't want to bring work home when they're home. They want to deal with, uh, engage with their spouse, their partner, their children, their friends, et cetera. And uh, if they've got work at home, they may feel like, well, I'm always tempted to do work. So this is not for everyone, but for a lot of people, they really, really like it. I had experience, now I retired after the spring semester, but I had experience working remotely for about a year uh, because NC State was shut down physically, but we still had classes. So I, I did classes online. I did meetings online. I did a lot of interviews with news people like you online. And uh, uh, one of the things that, uh, that always uh, was in the back of my mind when, when I was thinking about when will I retire was, gosh, could my wife and I, who's also retired, be around each other for, for, for all day? And, and I had a chance to try that and actually worked out very, very well. So, so I, I'm an example of someone who tried remote working, even though I'm doing a different type of work now, I'm not teaching students, tried that and it worked for me. So I want to kind of talk about the um, enterprise opportunities that you kind of like highlight in your article and how that might be slowed down by the fact that there's a lot of people who are wary of big tech and are wary of companies like Amazon um, getting more power and um, more profit from um from opportunities that could arise during the pandemic, like the delivery services mm -hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that might slow down anything that you're predicting or even stop some of the some of the enterprise opportunities that small businesses could have for um, online and yeah, online profit? Well, first of all, let me say that I, I do think there are some issues, some public policy issues with respect to the the big companies, a lot of them in the tech sector. And I think there'll be ongoing discussions in Washington in particular about that. But uh, to answer your question, no, I don't think that um, that concern is necessarily gonna slow down the uh, use by businesses of these new ways of reaching customers, delivering products, delivering services to customers. Again, I think if you look at, for example, cyber buying, buying online, that has just been exploding, going up and up and up every year. In fact, it's predicted that maybe by mid century 2050, about 60% of, of purchases of products and services by consumers will be will be online, maybe it'll even be higher. But if you, you extrapolate the rate of growth, that's where it would be. So, you know, I, I think that's that's too highly valued by people. I, I know um, uh, during the pandemic, my wife loves to cook. So we she she continued to do our meals, but we have a we had a neighbor across the street, single single person who was in the banking industry. And um, uh, he, he was working remotely and he, he was one of those people who ordered all of his meals and delivered to him and actually had us try some of them. They were actually, actually very, very good. So uh, I think once you enjoy that convenience, you're probably not going to, to go back. I think, that, I think one of the big questions with um, the remote delivery products and services is on the service side. I mean, clearly during the pandemic, we saw educational services delivered remotely. Now, at the university level, as I indicated, I was involved in that during the pandemic. Uh, at the university level, we've been doing that for, for decades. We call it distance learning. And so we were experienced in doing that. We know how to do it. Students were uh, knew how to, how the, what the ropes were, et cetera. 
K through 12 was a different matter. They'd never been involved in distance learning and this was thrust on them. So there's been a lot of pushback on that, but I, I do think that probably we're gonna see uh, at least for many schools, a distance learning component. I think they will learn to do it better. And once again, you may be a family who uh, lives, who works remotely, you're, you're, you, you live in a rural area, maybe there's not a, a physical school nearby. And if you can have educational services teaching brought in over the internet, and you can, if you're working at home, you can take time out each hour and work, work with your children. Again, a lot of families may just love that, and others won't. But, but again, I think what, what makes our economy great is all, we all don't have to fit in the same box. But, and what I'm saying here is I think there are gonna be a lot of different opportunities for pretty much doing everything we do, working, learning, uh, interacting with, with doctors, uh, that's so-called telemedicine, uh, ordering products like meals, et cetera. All those, there, there are gonna be different opportunities in those that, uh, for those that, that, that build on what we did during the pandemic. Definitely, and you, kind of, you mentioned the word convenience earlier, and I kind of feel like that's just the perfect word to you know, describe a lot of these, these uh, mm -hmm. enterprises, like Victoria was speaking about these services through, you know, remote education, through remote medicine, like you said, mm -hmm. Teladoc. And I think Teladoc is one of the, the aspects that I see, I think, growing the most out of this pandemic, you know, such a convenient way, like you said, for people to, to access medicine. Do you, but do you see that in any way also kind of putting a hindrance on, on possible health departments and our hospitals as well as we see that aspect of medicine grow? Well, it's obviously you're not going to get rid of uh, doctors and, and hospitals. I mean, if you need surgery, uh, you're going to have to go in. It's not as if this is going to perform surgery through the internet. But I see uh, telemedicine or teledoc, I see two parts of that. One is obviously just communicating with your doctor without actually physically having to go to a doctor's office. Every time I go see my doctor, my, my uh, family doctor, I wait about an hour in the waiting room, then I get a room, and then it's another hour. So it's, there, there's a lot of time committed to that. And what many see is a system that we'll have down the road where every day uh, you'll have measurements taken, data from your, from your body, and that'll be sent electronically to your doctor. So your doctor will be able, and of course all this data will be compiled automatically by programs, et cetera. Your doctor will have access, up-to-date access to what's going on with your body and won't, will only call you in when there's some problem they need to deal with. And once there's a problem, again, they'll have the information there at hand that they'll know when you get there pretty much what they have to do. Whereas now, if I, if I got a problem, I had some knee problems a couple months ago. So I went into the doctor. She knew that was going to be the problem issue, but she had to do all kind of tests and bang my knee, et cetera, et cetera, before she came up with a, a solution. So uh, with, with telemedicine, hopefully it'll be a big, again, uh, as you said, convenience, and it'll be a time saver. Plus, it will allow doctors to get at issues in a more timely fashion because of this continual inputting of data. So that's where I see that going. Do you think that the, the opportunities that are available for a lot of these businesses that have access to, to technology might increase the wealth gap with, um, with people who, who can't necessarily afford to have deliveries, afford a delivery service fee for each meal or, or um, anything like that? Um, well, yeah, none of these things are going to, are going to necessarily decrease income inequality, although I will say 
that if you have a, a family of modest income means uh, who are now living in the city and they can't afford to buy a house and raise their children a house because housing prices are so high, if they could work remotely and move to the rural area or small town, that would actually increase their standard of living a, a lot. Um, but in terms of whether they can afford to, to pay the, the fee that it takes in order to have meals delivered to them, that's, that's, that's another question. But I do think if you look at where people's incomes go, the two biggest are housing and transportation, transportation primarily being uh, payments on cars and, and et cetera. And, and my point here was, and I always said this earlier, if you're able to live in a small town rural area, immediately you cut your housing costs, maybe by as much as 50%, and you also cut your transportation costs. So that's gonna free up money that, that the family could use, the household could use in other ways, and maybe even allow them if they wanted to, to buy and have delivered these pre-prepared meals. So, so actually from that point of view, I think this notion of these, these changes that we have seen during the pandemic, all which have usually have the, the prefix remote on them, remote work, remote education, remote delivery, et cetera. I think they, are, they actually could help at least narrow somewhat uh, the income gap between households. Is there any aspect you know, to this or any aspect of this that, that really stands out to you that you think is gonna be kind of like the the big one post pandemic, I guess, is the right way to sort of phrase that, or one that you think is, is gonna have the, the most impact on post-pandemic. Well, it, notice that everything I was talking about relies on internet access. And so one issue we have to deal with right off the bat is universal access to high-speed internet, which we don't have. Uh, latest data show about 20% of North Carolinians don't have access. I don't mean it's there and they just can't afford it. I mean, it's just not there at all. And obviously this is all in, in rural areas. And so I, I think one of the things we learn out of the pandemic is that um, internet access today is kind of like electricity, access to electricity was um, a century ago. I'm, I'm 70 years old. So I had grandparents who were, who were raising families during the 19 teens and 1920s. I can remember vividly having a conversation when I was a young person with one of my grandmothers and she, she remembered to the day, uh, she remembered almost what she was doing when the lights came on, when, when, the, when electricity was, was strung out, she, they, she lived on a farm in rural area, when the electricity lines got to her farm just was life changing to them. And, and I think that's where we are now with, with internet. And we've been talking about this for a long time, but I think finally the pandemic has really been the push that we need to get high speed internet. And for example, if you look at the $1.5 trillion basic, I'll call it infrastructure plan that the Senate passed and, and, and Washington, the House is concerned, there's $50 billion there for high speed internet. North Carolina's General Assembly has allocated some money for high speed internet. So I, I think that probably within five to 10 years, we're gonna have universally available high speed internet. And that, so that I think is the biggest deal because all these other things I've been talking about really rely on, on having that capability. Yeah, I've, I've been actually covering that kind of story about uh, how much money is going towards uh, high-speed internet, mm -hmm. how much was proposed. And I know that um, several rural counties here in the East are piloting um, like test programs like uh, mm -hmm. SpaceX for their students and stuff yes. like that. Yes. So, it, so it, there is going to be, there is already government kind of like funding going towards it. Um, and when you mentioned SpaceX, that's interesting because how we get high-speed internet may change dramatically. SpaceX, as you know, you covered it, that's Elon Musk's uh, company. And uh, he, um, 
his notion is to put low orbiting satellites in the air, not what current satellite people have where they're 25,000 miles up. His will be only 600 miles up. Uh, he's really cut the cost of doing that because he's developed a reusable rocket. So it may be that uh, what the way, especially people who don't have high speed right now, get it in the future is from the sky through these. And I think Musk has said that the cost will be, I think it's $500, a one-time fee of $500 for the receptor you would need, and then maybe $100 a month. And now, you know, there's some issues. There's some people who can't afford $100 a month, but I think that's a separate issue from how we get it. So I think that's very exciting. And, and that's why one of the reasons I am optimistic that either through the ground or through telephone lines or through space, uh, we'll ultimately get to high-speed internet availability for everyone. So um, my question for you is regarding um, something that's happening right now that caught my attention post-pandemic and could be because of the pandemic is the fact that there are so many businesses that are hiring mm -hmm. and there are so many people that are, are many of those businesses are having to close down because mm -hmm. of um, that they don't have staff or anything like that. What, what is your analysis or, or take yeah. on why that's happening? This, I think, may be one of the major outcomes of the pandemic, and actually it's a good thing because, because I think here's what's going on in many cases. It's not that those people, let, let's, let's say you had a, a restaurant and you, you had a staff of 30 people and you were shut down during the pandemic. Now you're back open and you all 30 positions available. So you, as the owner of the restaurant, I mean, you know, those people will come back. What restaurateurs are fine? No, they're not. <laughs> maybe some of them are, maybe half, but all of them are. The reason for that is not that they're getting lavish unemployment compensation. That, that's maybe a little bit of it, but that's not the main reason. The big reason is that economists have discovered is that over the last year, and I, and I think this is a good thing and I praise people who have done this. Over the last year, a lot of folks, uh, a lot of them being very young, who were working in uh, minimum wage jobs or low wage jobs, during the last year, they had support. They had unemployment compensation. They had food stamps. Maybe they had their rent forgiven. So they were able to survive financially. And they didn't just, they didn't sit on the couch and watch TV and, and play video games. What they did is they said to themselves, you know what? When this economy goes back to normal, I don't want to go back to that job. It doesn't pay anything. There's no future. I'm going to take this time to get some better skills. I'm going to upskill myself so that I can work in a medical area, or I can work in, in a tech area, uh, et cetera. And, and we've got evidence that uh, a lot of young people especially have actually done that. And so I think that's been the big issue, that uh, those lower paying jobs are not attracting people because those, those workers now have other places they can go and work and get better pay. So what the restaurateur is going to have to do is either increase their, their pay, which of course means higher prices for, for meals, or they're going to increasingly look at technology as a way to substitute for, for people. For example, I'll give you two examples of this that, that I've seen. Uh, some restaurants, I think it's in New York City where I read the story, actually are using robots in the restaurant to deliver meals to, to, to patrons. You still have a real person who comes and takes your order, but then the, the robot delivers the meals. The, the, uh, the other example I'll give, I actually had personal experience with this. My wife and I were out uh, driving uh, northern part, I think it was Person County, stopped at a McDonald's, and we went in, and actually McDonald's my first job when I was 16, working the counter. There was no counter to go to order. There was a kiosk 
So here we are, two 70-year-olds, oh, we have we had to stand there and sort of figure out the kiosk. But the point is McDonald's is already going in this direction because kiosk ordering means they don't have as many people out, out there at the counter. So I think this is probably what we're going to see more of uh, in those low uh, pay industries. We're going to see them saying, you know what, um, I, I just can't up my pay enough to bring people in. I'm going to look for technology as the way to, to get by. Sure. And I think this is my last question for you. I'm not sure how many Victoria has left as well, but my last question for you is, I know this wasn't necessarily part of, of your article, but I want to hear your thoughts on, on kind of, you know, the housing market post pandemic. Hmm. You know, obviously this has kind of been a seller's market right now, not a buyer's market whatsoever. So do you kind of see that flip-flopping maybe post pandemic or, or we might, you know, kind of ride on along this train that we're on for a little bit? Yeah, I've had that question a lot. And I think what a lot of people think about about uh, is 10 years ago, the Great Recession, when we, we had a similar run-up in housing prices, and then there was a collapse. I don't think we're going to have a collapse, but I do think that we're going to see a moderation in housing prices. Maybe in some markets, we'll have a little bit of a, a downtick. What we had during the pandemic was really the perfect storm for these higher prices. Number one, we had shortages of materials, lumber, so that makes it more expensive to build homes. And even if you're not building a home, if you're selling an existing home, that allows you to raise the price because your competition is, is a higher price. And then secondly, uh, believe it or not, people had money. <laughs> the stimulus checks, um, um, uh, unemployment supplements, et cetera, people had, and plus people weren't spending money elsewhere. So people had money to buy houses. So that was sort of a perfect storm driving up those prices. That's all gonna moderate. And I think the question is not, uh, that our housing prices are going to continue to go up at 25% a year? No, I think we know the answer to that's no. The question is, are they going to maybe go up five or 10% a year, or could they take a dip? And I think it's more likely they're, they're going to continue to go up, although in some markets we may see a, a slight dip. But I don't, I don't see anything like a plunge in the market that we saw in 2008, 2009. This will be my last. Well, I have I have one like last serious question, then I have like a fun kind of question that I'm curious about. Um, so, in in regards to the census data that came out, and this is again a little bit off topic, but not off topic, but off topic from your article. But do you see um, the census data shows that a lot? Ah, hold on, sorry, let me exit out of that. Um, the census data shows that a lot of um, they called it minority communities are now becoming the majority, a lot of majority minority communities, something like that, where it shows a more diversifying in America. Um, do you believe that that's in any way going to influence um, some of the, the sectors that are um, popular in, in uh, what is it? When, it, when it, in regards to what's popular right now in terms of what's hot on the market, do you think that the trends of a lot of these diverse communities are going to um, kind of like influence what's next. Like, because what I'm thinking is um, a lot of Instagram uh, companies or a lot of companies that are on Instagram show shoes and fashion and um, those kind of products becoming more and more popular within culture. Do you mm -hmm. see any other sectors um, also becoming more popular because of the, the, diversity that's blooming in America? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is, well, we'll more to what we would consider the tastes and preferences of what were uh, minority 
um, sectors and minority cultures, since in some cases, those minorities are now the majority, will that change kind of mainstream um, offerings of everything from fashion to, to music, to food, et cetera? And yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, I mean, the smart business, uh, they, they know their customer base. And if the customer base is changing, if they're younger, if, they're, if they have different experiences, uh, they like different kinds of food, uh, yeah, the businesses want to cater that because they want to they want they want to make sales. So yeah, I do think that we and I we sort of have already seen that. I mean, I've again I've been around many more decades than both of you, but I I, I think over time we've seen mainstream culture, if I can call it that, become more diverse, um, uh, particularly in say the food area. Just to give an example that, that won't make anyone mad uh, in the food area, you have all different kinds of of food from different backgrounds, et cetera, different countries. Uh, Indian food, for example, that when I was growing up in the 50s, there were no Indian restaurants, but now there are. I'm Asian, Asian Indian, what I mean. So yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's gonna make our culture um, uh, more diverse, broader, and, and I would argue richer. Okay, so here's the fun question. I see, I, is that Chicago? No, 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 no. Boo, boo, Cincinnati. Ooh. Cincinnati. No, no, we hate the Cubs. No, no, no. no. <laughs> is Cincinnati, there Cincinnati Reds? Well, that's where I'm from. I grew up in Cincinnati, and I grew up uh, in the '50s and '60s there. And uh, this was before, uh, at least, Cincinnati, the NFL. So Reds reigned supreme there. And uh, I remember going to games with one of my grandfathers, and I've been a Reds fan, I think the, kind of the sports allegiance you form when you're really, really young, you carry those through. So of all the sports, professional sports, that's the one I really latch on to. So I'm in the zone right now. The Reds are going well. They're headed toward hopefully a playoff appearance. And um, and uh, But I've got, a, I've got a broad collection of hats, more so that you can see in the background. My wife makes me keep, only allows me to keep so many out. And then the rest are stored, but I rotate them. But yeah, those are all Cincinnati Reds hats. Well, awesome. Yeah. Ever since we started doing these like Zoom <laughs> podcast interviews, I'm always like, I'm curious about their background. Sure, yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this great. edition of um, What the Politics. It's always great to talk to you outside of, you know, the news kind of industry and do something a little bit more long term that we can get into detail about some of these issues that we're talking about. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. And Excellent. for everyone who's listening, I'm going to go ahead and just let you all know that we're available on Apple and Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Goodbye, y'all.